Well, good to see you all. We will make a start. We'll probably, we might even sing at the end if we, if we get enough time. Um, trust you've had a good week. Easter week this one, isn't it? And uh, people are already here, there and every other place, it seems to happen. So it's good that you're able to make it and spend this, the last week in looking at what it means to understand of the Bible like never before. So a couple of um, things to say before I start, and then I'm going to get Sarah to come and pray for us, which would be great. Um, first of all, as I said, it is session six, so just change that on your notes. I forgot to, forgot to do that on the pro forma, um, and that's, that's the way it is. Um, I did mention last week, very briefly, this little book, um, the Bible down under, and there's another one this lady's written, she has a PhD, a Dr Meredith Lake, and available at Kurong. this one's not too bad, $10, but um, the history of the Bible in Australia, it is a fascinating read. I've, in between times, I've got through half of it, it's, it's really helpful. If you want to spend a lot of money and buy the bigger thing that she wrote, uh, so be it, that's fine. But this, this is just opening doors into how influential the Bible's been in Australia from, from colonial life right through. So um, given what we're looking at and our use of the scriptures, it's probably a good thing because so much, so much of what we read comes from other places, yes? So to have something that's, that's uniquely Australian is good. Uh, people familiar with the author, um, British Anglican uh, Bishop N.T. Wright? You heard of him? No? Some of you? Um, this is worth, worth borrowing. Can't borrow my copy, but worth borrowing if, if you want. Um, just gives you a bit of a different take on the, the use of Scripture. And then I uh, came across Rick Warren's Bible study methods. I think it's been, uh, since I got my original copy many moons ago, it's been updated a little bit, but this is actually quite helpful. And if you're digging a little deeper into, the, into actually studying the scriptures, it gives you quite 12 different ways of approaching that. So uh, what I'll do is I'll just put it on the table um, and if it comes back with 50 different names written in it, I'll know you're trying to steal it. Um, <laughs> you, can, you can pass it around, um, have a bit of a look at it, just gives you some idea. And another one I picked up, uh, I did pay for these at Kurong. Um, by the way, uh, this is a nice little coffee table book um, on, this, on the history of, of the scriptures. It's got lots of nice coloured plates and things like that, but something that in your home people can breeze in and have a bit of a look, quite interesting. Again, um, I'll put it there and you can pass it around, have a bit of an idea, because places like Kurong are not always that easy to get to. And you can have a bit of a look at that one as well if, it, if you so desire to. And I thought because uh, I felt like it, I'd give, I'd give Andy Wright this, the copy of this book. What do you reckon? Do you reckon Andy deserves it? Thank you. There you go. And that means nobody has to put yourselves painfully through reciting the scripture that you learnt this week to win a book. Is that all right? Okay, but let's stand together and see if we can recite the very last one on the page. There... 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Yep, 
I will mention that in a moment. Let's stand, shall we? Partner up with somebody, you know the deal by now. And uh, let's say the very last scripture, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. I'll say it to you and then you go. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came out of the prophet's, uh, about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For no prophecy was ever brought forth by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The New International Version of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Everybody got that one? Away you go. You got a minute. Just say it backwards and forwards to one another. Okay. I'm going to ask Sarah now if she'd come and lead us in prayer. So let's, let's pause for a moment. Sarah, come and pray for us all. Lord, we just want to lift um, this night and this time together up to you, um, that you would come and bring your spirit here so um, that you may be able to teach us um, and teach our hearts um, more about you and how to know more about you. Um, Yeah, Lord, you've done so much to know about us um, and you've given us a book uh, to be able to learn and know about you. Um, So, Lord, I pray that, yeah, you would come and... um, dwell in this place and begin to teach us more and more about you. Yeah, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Sarah. Appreciate it. Well done. Okay, well, tonight we're going to try and attempt the impossible. Um, But before we get to the impossible, I want to say one or two things. If I can encourage you, some of you have got it already, but if you can get that little booklet, it'll be so helpful in putting together um, your understanding of how we've actually end up, ended up with a Bible in our hands. All right. By the way, what was one of the great, um, the great turning points in world history? Can somebody give me one of the really significant turning points in world history? That will go down for the next thousand years. That's a given. How can I argue? Can't, can't argue with that, Beth. You win. You can argue with Andy about the book. <laughs> the printing press. The Reformation. No more world history events. This is the one I wanted. The printing press changed the face of world history. Because before that, all the, all the texts that we have, that we got our Bible from, and all the texts in ordinary life were written out painstakingly by hand and copied. I heard a fellow say last night on a tape that to be a scribe in New Testament times was really good money. You're very important people. In fact, you'd be earning the equivalent of $300 an hour in today's language. So to be a scribe was an immensely important job. But the printing press changed all that and people got given in their own language stuff they could read and it got passed around at an amazing speed. So, very significant event. So, can I encourage you to get some... If you don't get that book, that one's a fairly cheap. Four, four bucks, goodness me. Um, th- this one's Andy's because I just gave it to him. It's called God's Dangerous Book. Andy won't mind if it's passed around as long as he gets it back. Put your name in it, mate. Okay. 
trusting Christians in this place. It's, it's all good. Um, before we get to talking to doing the impossible thing of trying to open up some areas of the New Testament and how we go about reading them, I just want to mention one or two things from last week. Last week we were rushed, and I'm afraid we're going to be rushed again tonight. But we'll do our best, okay? If you forgive me ahead of time, we'll all be great. Um, I mentioned the scripture found in Deuteronomy 14.21, the, the one about not boiling um, uh, a mother's kid goat in her, in her milk. Remember that one? Yeah. Um, and I, I, I was just rushed and I forgot to mention that Gordon Fee and uh, Douglas Stewart talk about that um, and gave me the, a, a helpful understanding. Can I read something that says... See, have you ever read that passage and wondered what on earth it's about? Why, why they were prohibited from doing that? Apart from the fact that it sounds absolutely awful, right? But this is why. The Canaanites believed in what is called sympathetic magic. I'm quoting Stuart and Fee, or Fee and Stuart. The idea that symbolic actions can influence the gods and nature. They thought that boiling a goat kid in its mother's milk would magically ensure the continuing fertility of the flock. Mixing animal breeds, seeds or materials was thought to marry them so as magically to produce offspring, that is, agricultural bounty in the future. God could not and would not bless his people if they practised such nonsense. Knowing the intention of such laws to keep the Israelites from being led into the Canaanite religion where salvation was not available helps you to see that they are not arbitrary but crucial and graciously beneficial. You see that? Now, sometimes a little bit of digging in the background can help us understand some of these things that seem to be so mysterious and hard to get and people come up with all kinds of weirdo applications, all right? Um, And another thing that I mentioned um, uh, last week was about prophecy and we talked a lot about how Old Testament prophecy, the prophets were speaking to the, the immediate situation, both men and women, talking to the nation about its sin, generally speaking, and calling the nation back to its covenant relationship with God. It wasn't always on the sin track, but it was generally about that, okay? And a lot of the Old Testament prophecy is that. But don't forget, um, and we did talk about this last week, but I just want to re-emphasise that there was a predictive element within the prophecy as well, very often. Otherwise, by the way, we we would be a little bit bereft because we'd be looking back and saying, how does Messiah suddenly appear? Well, he was, he was, it was prophesied that he would, right? So it's really very important for us uh, to get hold of it, uh, that whole predictive thing. One, there's, a, there's a great verse you might want to learn by heart. It's in Amos 3.7. It says, surely, this is an NIV version. I learned it in a slightly different one, but it says, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his, plans, his plan to his servants, the prophets. So God never acts without telling people what he's going to do. So that's the whole role of prophecy. He's always laying out his plan for us. Do you get that? So that's incredibly, it's, it's very comforting. It's also quite confronting. But, it but God always acts within his plan. And uh, that's, I think in a way that's one of the things we need to sort of recapture a bit in modern church life because Sometimes the other voices that are out there are pushing us so hard we're not hearing some other things that God is actually saying. And just to help us understand again, it was Augustine apparently who said, the new is in the old concealed, 
The old is in the new revealed. So, do you get that? The new is in the old concealed. It's all there in the Old Testament and the Old Testament reveals, um, the New Testament reveals um, the old. Okay, now, this is going to be an absolutely ludicrous thing to try and do, but we're going to try and do it. What I want to do is unpack um, some of the New Testament stuff for us and give us some clues and ideas about how we get into reading and studying those areas of the scripture. In your notes, I've just put a thing up there with a few reference points, just called reading the sections. I've put those books there because I've used them a bit and I want to just acknowledge the authors and so forth as we go through. There are plenty of, plenty of books available today. You've just got to hunt and search. Um, some of them are um, uh, great, great old books that just will, will stand the test of time and there's new stuff coming out all the time. You've just got to hunt around a little bit. I do want to re-emphasise that you do take out one of your gold teeth and invest in that book. All right? How to read the Bible for its all it's worth and the companion one, How to Read the Bible Book by Book, written by uh, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, uh, will be so helpful to you as you set about the task of, of reading the scriptures and studying them for yourselves. Sorry? Now, on Kindle, this is about four bucks at the moment. And uh, Heather and I came across another one, or I came across it, but she came across it. Doesn't matter. There's one called, How to, uh, same title, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And Jan Vermeer, and it's, on, it's an electronic book, and it's worth getting hold of. So again, it's, it's really worth um, sort of chicken feed price. Okay, we come to read the New Testament. So I'm just going to go pretty flat out. If you want to stop me and ask a question, do so. I'll probably give you a quick answer, all right? Not that I'm very good at giving quick answers. When we're reading the New Testament, what are we actually reading? We're reading a dollar... It's the New Covenant, isn't it? There was the Old Covenant, now we have the New Covenant. As a follower of Jesus, which covenant do you belong to? Are you glad about that? Absolutely. So, in a way, the covenant is an agreement. A covenant is agreement. And the old was basically God's agreement with us and, and so in the new. But um, I haven't got time to get into covenant. That's something that you probably need to, to start to read for yourselves or get some background information about the whole issue of covenant. It's very powerful. A covenant, in, in much of the covenant understanding for us is that God is the one who makes covenant with people. Covenant usually is a two-way thing, but so much of Old Testament covenant is God covenanting with his people about certain things. Are you following me? I'm trying to be deliberately vague, actually. But um, the reason for raising it is God always fools his promises to his people, even when his people break their side of the bargain. And you and I know that, and that's why we need the new covenant, because the new covenant's based in the cross, Jesus' birth, his, uh, all his ministry, his death, the resurrection, his, his ascension. That's God's promise to us for salvation and for continuing Christian life. However, in terms of reading 
Um, it's difficult to read and fully understand the New Testament without some background in the Old. Are you with me? So don't get too spooked by the Old Testament. If you can encourage yourself to pick up the discipline of reading it, it's just a good thing to do because you... Whilst you can read the New Testament, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the different types of literature there uh, shortly, whilst you can read it without having to have read the Old Testament, you will come across parts in the, Old, in the New Testament where the writer says, that's written in such and such a place. In fact, one of the writers says, somewhere it says. So they're referring back to the Old Covenant. And what you're reading in the, in the New Covenant literature then becomes more accessible and sensible to you because you realise the context of the Old Testament in the first place. You with me so far? Okay. A bit heavy for this hour of the night, I get that. Um, but, we, but it does help us in our understanding of the New Testament and it certainly helps us in our interpretation of it because if we jump in at... I'm not giving any examples, but if we jump in at some of the things that are written without some Old Testament background... Um, we can get ourselves into lots of interpretive difficulty. So I, it was good to be reminded when I was learning all this stuff so many years ago, and you, you've got, just got to keep refreshed in it. It was good to be reminded that the early followers of Jesus did not have a Bible with the New Testament in it. So when they were exhorted to read the scriptures in their assemblings, which, by the way, ecclesia is the word that's used for church, just means a community, it, it's... Um, it's really gathering, it's just, that's what it means, well, called out ones, literally. Um, if, you think about, if you think about that, when the, the scriptures, you know, Paul says, pay attention to Timothy, uh, pay attention to the public reading of scripture. What were they reading? The Old Testament, right? Because the New Testament didn't get finally put into, into canonical form, which means over time it developed which were the books that were good and which should be kept out. You can, you can, that's why you need to read something with a bit of history about these things. Uh, over, over time, those things um, developed and then the New Testament develops. Whether the early writers, Paul, John, Peter, ever thought their books would end up being scripture, who knows? I don't know the answer to that question. They were just passing letters and tracks around telling people about this wonderful person called Jesus the Nazarene, right? And what they did was go back into the Old Testament to prove from the Old Testament who he was. So in Acts you get the story of the Berean Christians who are more noble than their counterparts up the road because Peter was, Paul was going in and preaching Jesus from the Old Testament and they got into the Old Testament to find out if it was true. So they're called more noble-minded Fascinating. So, my plea for a bit of Old Testament discovery is very important. So much of what is written then in the New Testament is all about uh, who Jesus is so that people might come to a living faith in him. So in John 20, 30 and 1, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have Life in his name, okay? So central to the New Testament is, uh, is really is the personal work of Jesus. So when, when theologians and others start talking about studying uh, God, uh, they'll talk about pateriology, which is the study of the Father. They'll talk about 
uh, Christology, which is the study of Christ. Uh, what do they talk about when they, we talk about the study of the Holy Spirit? Anybody? I'm sure you know it. You'll know it as soon as I say it. They talk about pneumatology. And pneumatology is Greek for air. See, so when the Holy Spirit breathed, he's called ruach, which is breath. So the, the study of the Holy Spirit is the study of, of all of that, pneumatology. So traditionally that's how they kind of broke it up. Now the, the New Testament is a very Christological book. It's centred on Christ. It wants to tell people about Christ. So that's what the Gospels do. Then the Acts talk about how that expands. Then the letter is about the church that is formed because of, his, because of what Jesus does and so forth. So the traditional way of studying these things is to talk about the person and the work. Now old Jeff Bingham used to say, how do you know somebody? Well, you know them by their actions. So it's not just about what they say, it's about what they do. So you have the person and the work. Are you with me? And the New Testament is, is uh, very much centred on, on that. So the events of his life, his earthly life, are crucial to the records. The Gospels are taken up with that. And much centres on his teaching about the kingdom of God and God as Father and what God is really like. Okay? Um, so the New Testament wants us to know that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, it's interesting, here we are, right on the verge of celebrating Easter and the crucifixion once again, and it wasn't John Wayne who said, surely this is the Son of God. It was actually a centurion, Roman centurion, who said, he is the Son of God. And that's what the writers want us to know. He is both human and God. He came, he was incarnated. Incarnation means the becoming flesh. He's the one who, who became one of us and yet sinless in order to go to the cross to fulfil the will of his Father in bringing us back to him. You with me? You know all this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But when you read the New Testament, that's what you're going to find. Um, it's an amazing book. It's an invitation in that book for those uh, reading to come to know God. In fact, John chapter 3 says it is such a, mag a, a powerful thing, such a, a mind-shattering, radical thing, the most radical of all propositions, that a person has to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Do you follow that? So John chapter 3, you must be born again, says, well, don't you know that, Nicodemus? Come on, mate, you're a teacher. You should know the work of the Spirit. You must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Again, old Jeff Bingham used to point out, you know, that's an incredible, you can't even see the kingdom. Let's not even begin to talk about the kingdom of God in a way. Of course, you've got to talk about it before, but you don't actually see it unless you're born this this amazing shattering event of being born again by the Spirit from above it opens your eyes to see the kingdom. You don't really know it before then. Incidentally, it's a good argument in talking with some people about how they see the kingdom. You've got to be born again. You can't see it otherwise. Let alone go on to the so-called um, growth and things in it. So Jesus talks about the kingdom. So the cross... And the resurrection are very central to all that Jesus does. And from Acts on, there's really this continuation 
of the work of Jesus. So Luke writes that book and he, he writes it to a Theopolis who's a, a, probably a government official of some sort. And he, he writes Luke's gospel and then he says, in my former work I, I, I opened this up to you and now I want you to hear about the... What's he wanting to hear about? The church. And what's the church do? What do you do, by the way? Don't tell me you go to church, you're other church, right? Good, you got that one right. What do you do? You're actually continuing the work and the words and the work of who? Jesus. By implication, that's what he's saying in the very first verse of Acts. All the things Jesus began to do and to teach is carried through now by the church. So we should be doing what Jesus does. Anyway, that's a sermon. I'll spare you and you'll be forever grateful. So Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is a key verse. You know, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you should be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and right here at Allgate, Hills, Verdun, ends of the earth, right? And if you can see the book of Acts right through is follows in a theme. The letters are written to help build this uh, new phenomenon called the church. In fact, it was, it was brought to help. The church must have absolutely impacted that society with, in a, a very, very big way because uh, there, was, there was nothing of the kind of dynamic that the church was and how it functioned in their contemporary society. There wasn't the dynamic of love, of power, of forgiveness, of healing. There were, no, there were no social services in that culture. There was no caring for the poor, the broken, the disadvantaged. Suddenly the church turns all that around and it proclaims Jesus. It blows their minds, folks. And it's meant to today, by the way. However, that's another sermon coming on for another day. Um, but the letters are written to help this church grow because it starts to struggle with people who want to take it in heretical directions or get them doing things that aren't right or there's some trouble brews up in the church. So the, the writers, the apostles, write letters to help um, this new church. And then the final book, the Revelation, is, is really a preparatory book. It's an end book, but it's a preparatory book uh, because it's written to a church that's suffering and it's helping them prepare for the end of history. And yet at the same time, it's just like opening up a new chapter. Okay? You with me so far? Good. I'm not sure I'm with myself on all of that, but there you are. <laughs> There's a fair bit to get your head around, isn't it? When you think that people spend their entire lives studying all this, and some people spend their entire lives studying one little section of it, and somebody else spends their entire life studying a little bit of the Old Testament and writing books that are this thick. You're trying to get it all in a few minutes and put together in my roughly coined up... If you want, that's just a rough summary I did. If you want it, I can give it to you at some point. Just say so. So, I want to try and deal with the sections. So, if you read the Gospels, what, what are the Gospels? Very quick answer around the room... What's a gospel? You come to read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. All right? Bless the bed that I lay on. I was taught that as a kid. I don't know why they taught us nonsense like that, but anyway, because, uh, but they did things like that. So what are the, what's a gospel? Anybody? Just a quick answer. Sorry, over here. An account? Yes. 
Good news. Come back to that. Anything else? Good news about Jesus. Correct. So the Gospels are a really interesting piece of literature. Um, so look, look in, in uh, my old friends here, Fee and Stuart. Uh, uh, look at what they... I'm urging you to buy this book because um, you'll find it so helpful. Uh, but there are, other, there are other places. And I, I, there's one... Um, some of the, the, the New Testament introduction by Donald Guthrie, it's written in 1970, but I, hey, it's gold. If you come across that sort of really good scholarly introduction to the New Testament or Old Testament. A guy called R.K. Harrison wrote one for the Old Testament. They're just helpful in opening up, introducing you to the Bible, all right, and what these sections are all about. Now, just about all the people that talk about these things say this, the Gospels are not history, they're not biography, they're not story in the modern sense of the word, but they're all those things. They, do, they are on about history and they are on about biography and they are narrative, yes, full of it, but they're, they're more than that. So somebody said good news and good news about Jesus and account over here. They're all those things as well. They're, they're really an explanation of who Jesus was and what Jesus did and why he came to do it. But in another sense, they're also very heavily weighted evangelistic texts. Because they tell about who Jesus was. They want people to make their mind up about Jesus. So they start with some record of his, his, how he came into this world, the incarnation, and they end with his crucifixion and his resurrection. But they're always calling people to follow him. Right? The writers have had this experience of the risen Christ, the Son of God. They want their readers to get it. Um, so um, the gospel is actually the Greek word euangelion. It's two words, the prefix eu, which means good, and the other word is uh, angelos, really, which is the word for angel, messenger. Good, good message, good news. If you followed all that uh, sort of rambling stuff, you can find that in vines and other places or a bit of digging around for yourself. Um, the gospel has to have something of good news about it. Can you tell me what was the first thing that Jesus preached? Where would you go? Well, I'll give you a clue. It's at the beginning of the Gospels. And Mark chapter 1 would be quite a healthy clue towards it. And probably around about verse 14, where Jesus says, after, after the writer of Mark says, after John was, incidentally, some people think that the Gospel of Mark, Mark's Gospel was the memoirs of Peter. So who knows? So, but anyway, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Do you follow that? So the first thing that Jesus preaches is an invitation for people to have a transformed life. And he didn't, he didn't preach harsh. Hmm? I mean, there was, there was, there was something of an, um, a tonal invitation. 
Remember old Jeffrey Bingham talking about, you know, how do you, how do, you do? Repent! The kingdom is here. He didn't do that. He said, repent. Come on. Come on, guys. The best news ever is here. I'm here. Believe the gospel. And we'll get more people saying, you know what, I need that than if we tell them, if we smack them with a stick, they're not like that. Would you like it? Of course not. Because you already know you're a sinner, you see. And that's what the Gospels want to tell us. They want to tell us that people already knew they were sick. On one occasion, Jesus was accused, why are you mixing with all this stuff? And he says, well, you know, if, you, if, you're, not, if you're not in bad health, you don't need a doctor, do you? But I've come because they, they're sick and they need to be healed. It's always invitational. Are you with me? Another sermon right there. Okay, so that's, uh, that's the gospel has to have something about good news in it. And so you can imagine people reading it. Incidentally, we'll talk a little bit more about this. These things were read out loud. See, not, not many people were lit, literate. And as uh, a fellow called Ben Witherington III said, I was listening to a thing last night, um, People, it, was, it wasn't a text-based society. Like we, We're very text-based, right? We read, whether we read or not, or we, we read. Um, but they were a very oral society and they were very oral. So the oral is the speaking, the oral is the listening. They, they were a society that heard what was being said to them. So are you following that? So you have the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke, uh, yeah, Matthew, Luke, and Mark. Um, there's theories about uh, how Matthew, I think I've got this right. Anyway, there's theories about how they all came to be and whether some of these writers used a common source or whatever. I, I, I studied that years ago. I don't think it's really mattered much to me, but it does to some people, and that's fine. That's fair enough. I'm not trying to be naughty. Um, but John is slightly different. So Matthew, Mark and Luke are called synoptic gospels, which means basically the same. So when you read them, you, you get parallel stories, you know, and you can, you can check it out. You know, Mark has his account of, of the, you know, people being healed and Luke will have his and so forth, all right? The synoptic. John, whilst it incorporates all those stories, miracles, the signs of Je- that Jesus did and all, all of that, but he, he seems to have this a bit of a different take. You, have you ever noticed that? Um, but the others are just as much theological. It's just a different slant on it. Anyway, that's my opinion. No, nobody else might agree with me on that one, but that's okay. So when you read these Gospels, the thing is that all the Gospel writers are dealing with the same person and they want us to know who he is and they want people to form their discipleship based on coming to know him. So when you come to read them, um, can I encourage you to read what is actually written and not to want the Gospels to say other words or your perceptions and presuppositions as a force uh, to be be reckoned with. In other words, let them speak to you. It is really hard to read anything, actually, let alone the scripture, without a uh, a uh, presupposition. In fact, I'll guarantee right now in this election melee that's going on and, uh, you know, and we're going to be pumped with for another four weeks or whatever, 
I'll guarantee that most of us, well, I'm guilty as charged, I will read and hear stuff. I've, got a, I've already got a preconceived idea or a presupposition or a perception, yeah? When people say, oh, well, we'll make up our minds, you know, that we've got an... No, no, we, all, we approach things already with a perception. In fact, somebody once said, John Field said this to me once and other people, we know one another by perception. So we approach the scriptures with a perception, whether we want to or not. Very, very hard not to do it that way. Now, it's not wrong, it's just being aware of it. Are you, are you with me? You look a bit puzzled. We had a delightful experience, Heather and I, once in ministry in one place where... I, now, I've got time just to tell this story. No, maybe I shouldn't. All I can say to you is, is, it is very... No, I'll move on. I really need the person's permission. Um, it, it is very, it's very, very hard to read without perception. Okay? So when you're reading it, try to read with an open mind and open heart as much as you possibly can to hear what the writers were saying. And Fee and Stuart hammer away... Um, Get your exegesis going before you get into your interpretation. The other word that's used is hermeneutic. It just—it's about interpretation. Get your hear what it actually says, okay? And then there are all the other issues of history and etc. Okay, the epistles. Moving on to that. Again, what what kind of issues? Well, Fee and Stuart um, make it very clear to say. Um, they want you to learn to think contextually, the history, the historical content, uh, context of what you're reading. So here's the thing about letters. Um, they, act, they actually were not written for, uh, in, in the first instance for people to develop great theological treatises from. They're a letter. What do you do when you get a letter? Long lost friend writes a letter? You read it. Do you take several sessions and examine every sentence and every comma and question mark? Only if it's from the debtor's prison or something, but no. You don't you read a few times. Yeah, right, but you read it, you know, from beginning to end. Dear Neville, signed off, whoever. Okay? Well, that's what the letters were doing. And uh, um, so they they're basically out there to, to help fast and developing fast growing and developing churches so there's always occasional things in, in uh, around the writing of those letters um, the theology is certainly there but it's always backed up with heaps of practical instruction it's kind of like here it is now this is the way you do it and ephesians once took me 18 months to preach through ephesians because there's so much in it of how you deal with all this, this theology about who God is and what he's done and how it's all centred on Jesus and you end up with, now this is how you live. And it's, it ends up with that great you know, spiritual war cry at the end. Hmm? So uh, um, it's good to bear that in mind. Um, not all the letters, even though we, they're called letters in the New Testament, they're not all letters. Some are actually sermons. Ben Witherington points this out. See, the epistles of John don't have any customary greeting. They don't sign off with a, with a we'll see you later, and God bless you. 
They just, there are sermons. Much of the book of Acts is sermons. In fact, much of the New Testament is sermons. And they would have been heard in that, that kind of, of, of way. Um, so Fee and Stuart, uh, again, they say, learn to work out what the letter's about. And they, they do say one thing, read, read it through, read the whole letter. So give yourself some time sometime to read all of Galatians or read all of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but read it from the beginning to the end. So you get the, the wolf and the war of, of the letter. Otherwise, we pull bits and pieces out. Okay, We want to hear what the whole spread of the thing is doing. Is that making sense to you? So the first thing then again is to do your exegesis. Try and work out what the letter's about, how it's divided up. What was the writer saying? Who is he writing it to? For what reason was he writing it to? And again, bear in mind that those letters were read and they were read in these churches that were gathering. In fact, some of them were passed around from church to church. And there's probably other letters that were written that have just disappeared into antiquity that are lost to us um, that would have been available in that early setting. How are you all going? You're not tired yet? So again, it's issues of culture and all, all of that. Um, I think Ben Witherington's point about the oral nature of those letters and of much of the New Testament is so important because we, we've... Tra- well, that's actually a really interesting point for us to push around at some point. Maybe we're going back to a more oral culture than a, than a text-based culture. Or if, if, if we're going to a text-based culture, it's on um, these things... And it's usually about five sentences. Maybe we're getting information in different ways today. I don't, I don't know. That would be worth uh, spending an evening just talking about that with your friends and trying to work it through. But in terms of us reading the New Testament, it's good for us to realise that we actually do it in a slightly different way than our first century sisters and brothers would have done it or heard it. Okay? You with me? Wow, you're doing well. The Acts of the Apostles, when you come to read that, again, much of the issues that you would, would be there in reading uh, the, the New Testament letters are, are the same. Again, it's more than just history at its history, isn't it? So some people have this big argument about is the Acts of the Apostles a historical document or is, it a, is there theology? Well, I've never been troubled by that. For, for me, they're, they're both there. But some people would push the envelope too far and say you can't build theology on some of those places. I thought, goodness me, why can't you do that? Of course you can. In fact, there's some brilliant theology in the book of Acts. There's some brilliant Christological theology about who Jesus is. And it's also the book of the Holy Spirit, yes? So if you want to know more about the third person of the Trinity who lives and dwells with his church here and now, then I reckon the book of Acts would be something you'd want to read before you shut your eyes at night kind of thing, you know? Because it's so rich. And it tells us what the church did. The thing we've got to avoid, I think, is making odious comparisons between the modern-day church and the first-century church and realise that we could get into trouble doing that and we can force a lot of guilt on people. Oh, we're not like the first-century church. No, you're not. You're the 21st-century church. Hear that? We are the 21st century church. 
And when people say to me and have said over the years, oh, well, we need to be like the first century church, I say, which one would you like to be? You know, the church had any incest in it or whether they weren't looking after people or there's areas of sin and stuff. Which, tell me, which one would you actually like? Or do you want to be the church that had so much fear on it that people dropped dead? Wow. And the same, same church has spoken about where great grace was upon them all. So if you want to read about the church, read the book of Acts. But read the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit and how he equips the church for mission. Now that was one of the key <coughs> turning points in life for me, to realise that I could not, by my own strength and power, live as a Christian person. And it wasn't until, in the words of somebody whose name I've forgotten, honestly, um, said, you know, we need to be invaded by a force greater than we are. To bring us to that point where we realise we can't do this stuff on our own. And the book of Acts makes that patently clear. It emerges from that book that there are giants in the faith, people like Peter and Paul. As much of the story centres upon Peter um, and then Paul and the, the, the teams that Paul built that went, uh, went and ministered. Can somebody just grab me a glass of water? Thanks, I wouldn't... Um, that, that whole thing of, of um, how that works. Um, I'll tell you something else I like about the book of Acts. It's a raw book. By that I mean it doesn't, it doesn't sugarcoat this thing called the church. They had their squabbles. They had their problems. Um, there's a verse in the Bible about you. Says it's a blessing to give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, and you just did it. So you got top blessing. Thank you. Peter and uh, Paul, Paul and Barnabas were a couple of giants in the church. What was Barnabas known for? Right, that's his name, son of encouragement. What was Paul known for? Yep, and his proclamation of the gospel. He'd go to the Jews first was his method and then to the Gentiles and then he'd say, well, if you Jews don't want to hear about Messiah, well, I'll go to where I'm heard, right? So he was a brilliant champion theologian church leader. Develops teams. Amazing to study the life of Paul, yeah? Did you realise Paul and Barnabas at one point in the book of Acts have a really big ding argument? In fact, the, the Greek word is the word from which we get paroxysm. So they're really, and what was it all over? A deserter of the faith, in, in Paul's opinion. John Mark was clearing off and he couldn't be trusted. And I'm not going to invest my life in somebody like that. And Barnabas says, come on, Paul, come on, come on. Let's, let's show some faith in these young men. So they split. Paul and Silas went that way. Barnabas went the other direction. A little bit later on, you read Paul writing in Colossians, I think it is. I stand to be corrected. He says, oh, by the way, um, I want John Mark, he is useful for, to me. Something happened in his heart. Who was right, who was wrong? You form your own opinion. But it's there, folks. And sometimes in church life, we get all uppity because everybody doesn't love one another as they should. Well, so we should get uppity about that. However, we also need to be realists. People have to work at relationships, yes? 
And we can't, we can't end, out, end up with it being smoothed over in a lovey-dovey way. We've got to get down to bedrock with some of these things. Another sermon right there, Andy. So read the book of Acts. Um, it's great. People have preached through it. Um, it's just so encouraging to read that story once a year. And can I tell you the, the last thing I want to... Um, well, two things. It, it's, it is, there's some beautiful history. How many of you have been to the Middle East? How, have you been, how many have been to Greece, Turkey? Different places? You've seen some of these places where, you know, other night some TV thing, they, they were showing, the, 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 what's that thing in Athens? The, uh, um, um, the Parthenon? You, you know, Paul went to the Areopagus. You know, this is the real stuff. His feet were there. And even if they've turned it into a multi-million dollar earning machine, that's not the point. You know, about 2,000 years ago, these people were there. It's actual real stuff. And here's the last bit of real stuff. Acts 29 is being written as we sit here. Who's, who's writing it? You guys. Me. The church in its mission from the day that the writer Luke finished talking about Paul. It always kind of annoys me. We get to Acts 29 and I'm like, did Paul get to Spain? You know, did he da 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 We're left with, we don't know. But we do know this. For two millennia, the church has had this amazing expansion, yes? And every time you get discouraged and begin to think the world and its systems are more powerful, you need to read the book of Acts again because it says in that place... Here come those people who turned the world upside down. That was such was the impact of the church in its contemporary culture, which incidentally, friends, pretty much mirrors ours. So, encouragement to read the book of Acts. Again, remember those basic kind of rules that people like uh, Fee and others talk about. Just a couple of minutes on the book of the Revelation. And we'll break, have a short break. Uh, again, Fee and Stuart are good with this how to read the Bible for all it's worth. Um, I don't think I brought it with me. There's a great book if you ever want to buy it. It's a little, little old now, but it's called uh, Reversed Thunder. It's written by Eugene Peterson. It's one of the... It's, yeah, I left it home. It's a, it's a wonderful... It's not really a commentary. It's just a great book about the book of the Revelation. Uh, and he talks about the, God's last word on things like worship and judgment and hope and the church and blah, blah. It's brilliant. Um, and he, he treats the book um, as poetic liter- literature. So that's a great read. John Field put me onto that years ago and I've always been grateful for that. When you come to read the book, how many of you have read the book of the Revelation in the last year? Okay, put it on your bucket list, read it. If you haven't read it recently or, you know, you're not in the habit of reading it, can I encourage you to read it? It's, uh, it's not such a bad read. <laughs> it's good to read it. I won't go into who wrote it and all that stuff. Um, but what, what are some of the issues there? What, why, is it, why is the book difficult? to understand, or seems to be. Um, Incidentally, who finds it hard to understand? 
Anybody? Yeah, well, you're in good company. I think I've got this right, and I stand, I honestly, for the sake of podcast, stand to be corrected because I could have it wrong. But I think Luther said once, might have been a revelation to John, but it wasn't to him. And if that's true, well, you know, it's not easy to get hold of that book sometimes. Um, how many of you in reading have said, you know, I get the first bit, that's easy to understand. You know, the, the Spirit is saying, uh, Jesus is saying through the Spirit to the churches, yeah, hang, hang on. Yep. And, I, and um, I'm not a betting man, but sure as winks, um, I'll guarantee, you didn't get that one, but I'll guarantee that uh, somewhere, along, somewhere along the line you've heard sermons on, the, on the, the seven churches, yeah? But probably not much about the middle bit and maybe a little bit about the end. Because the middle bit's filled up with all that stuff, like symbols and wars and horses going through rivers that'll be in blood up to their saddles and bridles and... <laughs> Glory be. Not bedtime reading that. And, you know, it's a book that gets a lot of people into weirdo land. True? <laughs> yep. And some of those weirdo lands lob on your doorstep sometimes, and, and I don't mean literally. <laughs> and you think, oh dear. Is Revelation important? Oh yeah. Reve- the Revelation is really important. Absolutely. Bear with me and I'll try and explain why. (laughs) Um, It's a book where people get into a lot of teaching and interpretation and a lot of unnecessary unnecessary argument, more heat than light stuff, mainly about prophecy and the doctrine of the end times. Um, The consequence is many people just steer away from it and they don't want to go near the book. Um, and I, I've lost count over the years how many times people have come and asked me to preach on the revelations. Uh, oh, glory, I know what's coming next. Actually, the book is called The Revelation, so I'm a pedant on this one, so I probably annoy the heck out of people, but they, they want me to talk about revelations, and I say, actually, it's The Revelation, and it was The Revelation to John. He didn't give the revelation to me, he gave it to John. Okay? But it's an interesting word. It's the Greek apokalypto, which, which means to unveil. It means to reveal something. So the book is actually, whether we think it's easy to understand or not, it's actually a book about the, the scroll or the curtain, sorry, not the scroll, the curtain being pulled back so you can now see. Does that make sense to you? Now, when you're reading it, you might think, oh, it's not like that for me. And I have to say, there's lots of places for me. I, I don't try and interpret, you know, who's the, who's the dragon or the, the, you know, the dragon with X number of tails or blah, blah. And it's like, <laughs> you know, Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> However, that said, it is still a revelation. And by the way, how many of you would like to bless somebody else? Oh, only one or two of you want to bless somebody else. <laughs> we're on, we're on. How many of you would like to bless somebody else? Okay, well, why don't you read the book of Revelation out loud to them? Because it says there, 
There's a blessing in reading this book aloud to those who hear it. Some of the, some of the translations say that. It's amazing. It's very powerful. Um, what it means then is that it shows us something that we wouldn't know unless it was disclosed. Now, that's what apocalyptic literature does. So what do we understand by that? Well, it's a bit of a... See, it's interesting, isn't it? This apocalyptic theme, I, I won't go into it for sake of time and for the sake my brain's not strong enough to get my head around it all, but actually we live in a society that's obsessed with apocalyptic stuff. Have you noticed that? You know, there's a rash of films come up about how the world's going to end. A lot of people are interested in about how the world's going to end. Have you noticed that? And there's all these, these things. Now, the Bible was on it years ago. We, we just have this obsession with the world finishing up. You, you, this is not a statement about climate change per se or global warming or whatever because I just don't want to get politically in there. But it's, there's a fear thing behind all of that because we're going to finish ourselves off, which says there's no actual, for us, for, and for, for a lot of the, how can I put it, there is another narrative about God and his world. And the book of the Revelation makes that really clear. At the end, who wins? God and the saints. God's people. Now, you and I need to hear that. Because we live, it's not, I, you know, quite honestly, I'm, I'm quite happy to get involved in all the debates that go on regardless of anybody's position on it. I want to say to the world, there's a different story. Yeah? Now, if you stand strongly on that as a Christian, you could find yourself in strife because people won't hear that. They hear a different narrative. But the book of the Revelation is making it clear that God's in charge of things. Right? And I need to hear that. I need to hear that, whether I'm fighting for my family somewhere or whether I'm fighting for the church or whether I'm praying or whether I'm at worship or whatever, I need to hear a book like the Revelation that says me, God has not left his plan. Surely the Lord God does nothing except he reveals it to his servants, the prophets. So there is prophecy in this book. Whether it can be interpreted in the manifold ways that people interpret it, I don't know. But this I will tell you, it was written to a church that was suffering persecution. And that's why we read it. Because you and I could suffer persecution. We live a pretty easy Christian experience in this world. But if you step out, without me naming any recent contemporary examples you know that somebody will not like what you say, even if you, whether you disagree or agree with how those things happen. Right? May, mark that up a, 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 a thousand times over where you are literally suffering persecution for your faith, where you literally are going to say, God, are you real? Or the saints that are buried, you know, saying, how long, O oh Lord? No, the time is not yet. Hmm? God will bring his purposes to bear at the end. And so the end of the book finishes up with what? Even so, Lord Jesus, come. So it's more than just prophecy, isn't it? Um, there's teaching for the church. 
there's some really big lessons. Um, in a way, the revelation is the Bible's full stop. In another way, it's the beginning of a new paragraph because of the rest of the story is yet to be told. If you want to write down a verse for your life, one of my life verses is Deuteronomy 29, 29. And um, I found this to be a really helpful verse over the years. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to, uh, to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. I love that verse. See, when you really come to that place, folks, that in your reading, in your following Jesus, and you're getting deeper with him and all of that, you come to that place where you say, I really don't know much at all. And, you know, what we do know is because we believe in revelation, not that revelation, we believe in that, but the word revelation, all your faith is based on the fact that God reveals himself to you, his plan, his purpose, the heart of the cross, the resurrection. It's all there and it's enough revealed for you to have faith in him. Right? So, again, some quick tips. Try reading it through in one sitting. Do your exegesis. Try to get to understand what the word's about. Don't try and milk all the theories. There are four or five of them at last count. Um, and remember, you don't have to understand every symbolic detail to understand the purpose of the writer. So read uh, the Revelation 12. I believe uh, there's a spiritual warfare series started. That's a great passage about, about you know, the fight we have and how do the saints overcome the devil? The, the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony and the one we don't preach quite so much on. They did not love their lives even to death. It's right in the heart of the book, chapter 12, turning point in the book. It is a battle sometimes, isn't it, folks? But we overcome because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Well, now, if you get all that, you can read the New Testament. Actually, you've been reading it for years, and God bless you as you do. Hopefully, those things are just uh, uh, an encouragement to you as you set in to try and understand that scripture a bit more. Okay, can we break for a minute or two? We, we're doing that or are we, are we cup of tea? Or? Well, let's do it. Five minutes, guys, and then we'll come back. Now, when you come back, for sake of time, what I'd like you to do is go to Luke 18. So come back to the table with your cuppa and read Luke 18. It's in your notes. Um, I think I put it in your notes, didn't I? Yeah, Luke 18, 1 to 8. I want you to, to read that par little parable and just formulate in your own mind, what's this about? Away we go. Okay, so that's Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Um, we'll just give you not very much time at all for the sake of time to read it and say, hey, I think this little story is about this. Okay, what I'd like you to do is um, find yourself in a place where you can just listen for a moment, all right? 
Um, I'm going to read the parable to you. If you want to read it and follow um, the words for yourself, feel free to do that. But um, it may be just helpful just to listen to it. Okay? So just picture um, Jesus and he's got disciples who, the word disciple means uh, one who's learning in a way. So I often say to congregations that I've had the privilege to pastor, I want you to turn and look at somebody's back and see what you see. What do you see? I see a big L plate on you. Which means you have permission to be a a learner. And if you're a learner, what does that imply? You're a grower. You haven't got there yet, and it's okay. All right? Disciples are followers, learners. So all of us are in that situation as I read this to you. If you want to shut your eyes and listen, you might like to do it that way, up to you. Luke 18, verse 1, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men, and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? All right. It's a great little story, isn't it? Just want to spend a few minutes talking about parables, as indeed Fee and Stuart do, saying why some extra um, attention to parables. Well, so much of Jesus' teaching comes in parabolic form, doesn't it? It comes in forms of story. So when we read the New Testament, we only read the Gospels, we want to know what these stories are saying and how to understand them. Do you ever get frustrated reading a parable? Well, I do. There's some I think, what on earth are you on about? Do you ever get frustrated that some people seem to know the answer to every parable? Because in a way they're a little bit of a puzzle or a riddle. Okay? Um, Jesus used them all the time, didn't he? And sometimes people have cliched responses to how we understand a parable. Um, you know, a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And, you know, we, we, we want to make sometimes deep things kind of simple-ish. And I'm not sure it always works. But Jesus taught in parables. Um, 
A Collins dictionary says they're a narrative of imagined events used to typify moral or spiritual relations. So in other words, you get that. Um, the actual Greek word parabole means uh, putting things side by side. If you come across this word para in this kind of talk, in this kind of language, you need it's something alongside, just like we talk about a parallelogram or you know, railway lines are parallel to one another. Are you with me? So it's, 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 it's trying to teach us something. Um, Tasker says that, and he says something similar to allegory, which means saying things in a different way. So what are these parables? Well, we've just read one, and we'll, we'll look at it in a moment, but usually the stories that Jesus tells are, are about what? Kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. And? Yeah, they're normal people and normal household situations that everybody listening would know. So we would have to think up contemporary things in our 21st century to, to use a parable in the way that Jesus did. But he's, he's on about the kingdom. So if he's on about the kingdom, what are the parables likely to, to teach? About About God? about who he is, about God as Father, about how the kingdom operates. What's the kingdom? How would you describe that in a sentence? With difficulty, I know. But the kingdom is the reign and rule of God, is it not? So if we live in the kingdom of God, we're living in the reign and rule of God. So when we talk about being kingdom people, we're talking about everything that God's kingdom is about. Incidentally, you can't extend the kingdom. The kingdom is already. But don't get me into that. Have a think about it. So the kingdom is, is there. So Jesus is telling down-to-earth practical stories about the kingdom of God. So you already know the answers, don't you? Just getting in our heads when we read it and try and work out what he's saying, why he's saying it. He's usually making a point about something to do with living in the kingdom. Um, and he's... <laughs> he, but he's, it's, it's a bit more than that too, isn't it? See, so how many of the parables does he, does he finish off with a little saying? He or she who has ears to hear or eyes to see, let them hear and let them see. So there is that bit of puzzling in there, isn't there? Um, and as Sproul, R.C. Sproul, a theologian who's died and gone to be with the Lord, not not all that long ago, actually. Um, he, he talked about an element of concealment. You know, there's something a bit hidden. It's almost as if Jesus is trying to hide things away. In fact, in Matthew 13, he talks a bit like that. And yet he's not. He actually wants people to get it. So parables are really interesting. And uh, the reason I've raised it for us tonight is that we, we read a lot of them and they contain a lot of teaching about the kingdom of God and it, it's good for us to kind of grapple with them. And what I've found and discovered over time is that so many of these ancient parables that Jesus spoke speak right into our contemporary situation. You know, if he talks a parable of the, the rich fool, we call, it's being called, but what, what was he on about? Well, he had some wealth, but he wanted more wealth, didn't he? 
So tear down these barns, which are perfectly serviceable. I'll build a whole bunch more. They'll be bigger. And I'll put my feet up and I'll uh, book my ticket to Singapore and I'm going to bust up a lot of money. I'll take my ease. What's the story say? I'm quoting from memory. You fool. Don't you know tonight your very soul will be required of you? And then he talks about, look out, if you're not rich towards who? God. So what's he teaching? Riches in heaven. And so is there anything wrong with riches? No. It's how you use it. Priority. All of that. How hard it is, said Jesus on one occasion. So I think for us as Christ followers in the 21st century, we've got two... We've got a couple of tasks. One is to hear the stories that Jesus spoke in his day and age, in his context, and find out what he was actually saying to those who first heard them and why he said what he said to them. And secondly, the other task is for us to think through how does that affect us as Christ followers in this church today? Right? Because I'll tell you something interesting. A lot of people who claim no allegiance to God, who do not follow him, quote from the parables. So it's out there. What a wonderful missional bridge that is for you and for me. So when you're reading them, I think you the old, old thing, ask the, the six basic questions. What are they, folks? Can we tell me one more time? Who, what, where, when, why and how? Okay? So in trying to study and dealing and going a bit deeper, if you could just get that in your head, it was a turning point, it was a watershed in my ministry and Peter Nichol, in his inimitable style, said to me one day, ask questions. Who, what, when, why, how, where? Really helpful. Really helpful. In fact, those questions are your friends when it comes to studying the scripture in any place at all. When you're interpreting them, be careful with allegory, even though I know Jesus does it in Matthew 13. Um, But usually the parables are not interpreted like that. They usually, it's just common sense applied to it, but you've got to apply the common sense. You have to find that first century um, um, setting and ask yourself, get some background. What was he saying when he talks about the pearl of great price? You know, we can apply that to us. But what did it actually mean in that context? Are you with me? So that helps our understanding. And uh, again, read the context, do your exegesis and bring the, uh, the interpretation. So well, it's about as much time on that. So what was that parable about? Uh, yep. It's about prayer. Persevering. Sorry? Persevering. Persevering. Yes, I didn't hear that first bit. Faith in the fact that our Father is a good Father. Ah. That's why I think he's persevering. You know, he will do all this. We're faithless, but we live by faith. Yeah, well, so you've got to persevere because God is faithful and loving. And because your Father's not like the unjust judge. But I want to tell you something, listeners. If an unjust judge who's an absolute villain 
He was a horrible piece of work. If he can grant justice to a widow who's the most powerless person in society because she has nothing. She was probably young, but not necessarily. She had nothing. If an unjust judge can set her free, what's your heavenly father going to do for your life? Do you see the contrast? And what's the point? He told the parable, didn't he? That they should never stop praying. That's why he told the parable. Never give up. Well, there's a sermon in there, isn't there? But time's gone, so you're all spared. But did you get the point? And it just works so well. And I want to say to you, which is bad application, don't give up. (laughs) Don't give up on what you're doing. The very fact that you've been here over the weeks and others have as well, and people are listening on podcasts, God bless you all as well, is, is an indication that you want to push on and persevere with Jesus and get to know him more and get to know who God is more and more and more. So don't give up on it, yeah? And, and in this world where, where at times we, we uh, um, uh, are tempted to do otherwise, we need to hear again the words of Jesus who's saying to us, don't give, don't give up, come on, don't give up. I've put a little quote there from a sort of hero of mine. If you've ever read the story of William Carey, the so-called founder of, of, uh, father of modern missions. He's a Baptist, so we're proud of him and all that. Uh, attempt great things or expect great things from God and blah, blah. But plotter, uh, plotter he was, he said, if he, that means God, give me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond that will be too much. I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. If William Carey can describe himself as a plotter, there's a bit of hope for me. I won't have the story exactly right in its historical detail, but Carey worked at Biblical Translation to take the Gospel to Bengali people. He got the New Testament translated, all all the work done in its... uh, factory or whatever and it was burnt to the ground he had to start all over again that's only just one part of his story he 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 went to in uh, to india wherever it was with his wife and she basically went insane he he carried enormous burdens and he just simply said i can plod that gives you and me hope yes and it means we can plod at the the tasks are in front of us and it means we can draw enormous strength from reading and studying the word of God to, to have encouragement to get on with the mission that God has called us to. Because at the end of the day, that's part of us being disciples of Jesus, isn't it? To be involved in that full flow of the mission that he's called us to and empowers us by because of his Holy Spirit. So thank you for the great privilege that I've had over these last few weeks. And I give you absolute top honour for making it here week by week, even with the daylight saving change, which um, is always interesting. It's always easier to come out when the sun's shining. So blessings on you all. Thank you once again to Anne and to April for making sure we've had notes every week. So give, give Anne a big round of applause there. And uh, Andy up the back who's been here faithfully. He's on holidays at the moment. he come out to run this thing. That's that's great. And to the pastors and, and staff at, at Hills, 
overall for the encouragement for us to deal into this. So we want Mark and Robin and Dave to know and uh, Nat, isn't it? Nat's uh, training, so-called, for ministry. What a wonderful place to be in life to be called to do that. That's great. So we want to encourage those men as well. But it's not just that. It's, uh, it's the whole church wanting to get deeper into God, which is fantastic. I'm one minute over time, but I'm going to pray. Would you like to stand with me as we do? Lord Jesus, in our 21st century culture, it would be amazing to know what, uh, what you would land on to, uh, in story to tell us about your kingdom. But we know you'd do it. And you would, uh, you'd be speaking to us and our ears would be open to hear. We would trust to do that anyway. But we have to admit, we're so grateful that we live in this era where you've, you've, you went to that cross and died and you were buried. And so grossly disfigured was your form that we wanted to run away until we understood that's the place that we came home to have all of our sins forgiven and cleansed and to be given new life, born again. And Lord, we're walking in this day and in this age where there is hostility to you and to your faith and yet you give us the courage to press on because our sisters and brothers of all the ages have done that and you've given us the word to read You've given us sisters and brothers that will be with us to encourage us. Oh, our God, we want to worship and praise you. Over this Easter period, pray that you take us that little bit deeper into the faith. We might see you in all your glory. And Father, in our own attempts to read and understand your word day by day, week by week, year by year, month by month, would you just bless us? Would you be pleased to pour out your spirit on our meditation, on our memory work, all those kinds of things, but deeper than that, would you just be pleased to bless us as we seek to follow Jesus and do what he wants? We ask this in and for his glory, really. And we ask it because we want to. We really want to. Amen.